SequelCast 2 is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. He's such a jerk. I wish he'd drop dead. Hello and welcome to SequelCast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt bradley Shergy, and with me is my co-host, William Thrasher. Hey, don't I know you? You look really familiar to me. I haven't done anything. I haven't even, uh, I haven't killed 40 people on the east and west coast in Chicago and New York and San Francisco. It could be much more. I mean, who has time to count? Excuse me while I eat an ice cream sandwich and walk away slowly. Yeah, uh, he would pronounce it sandwich, wouldn't he? <laughs> he would. Uh, one, I was rewatching some of Death Wish Three uh, just because I like some of the explosions in that movie, and he eats ice cream and on a stick, and he does that same thing when he gets robbed in Death Wish Two. So, the, apparently, Paul Kersey enjoys his uh, ice cream, vanilla ice cream covered with a coating of chocolate. The ice cream bars. <laughs> well, you know what I, I've noticed is that Paul Paul Kersey, he's a creature of habit. One of those habits is murdering people. But another habit is he's definitely got a type, and that type is lady reporters. Um, Doomed lady reporters, yes. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. Well, doomed, so, doomed women in general. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, so Death Wish 4, The Crackdown, um, directed by J. Lee Thompson, produced by Pancho Koner, screenplay by Gail Morgan Hickman, based on characters by Brian Garfield, stars Charles Bronson, Kay Lentz, John P. Ryan, uh, Soontech O, uh, and has a very um, early in his career appearance by Danny Trejo as kind of a background player. Uh, this has music by John Bisharat, Paul McCollum, and Valentine McCollum, cinematography Gideon Porath, and the editor is Peter Lee Thompson, Thompson who is J. Lee Thompson's son. Um, J. Lee Thompson, he actually did a, uh, a, a movie we did very early on in the original sequel cast show. Oh, yeah? He directed the last two movies in the original Planet of the Apes cycle, Conquest and Battle. Oh, wow. And he, um, you know, had a huge uh, a British director who then came to the U.S. to do a lot of things and uh, just had a really career uh, doing, you know, some, some bona fide classics like The Guns of Navarone, uh, the original Cape Fear. Um, and then as his career went on, he did a lot of action pictures like uh, the, the Apes movies. And it worked quite a lot with... Um, Charles Bronson, in fact, this was his last three movies are all Bronson pictures, um, including things like Messenger of Death and Kinjite, Forbidden Subjects. Well, you know, I'm, I'm looking at this and, and like, looks like Dan, this is the fifth credit I can find for Danny Trejo. So this is way early in his career. He worked with J. Lee Thompson several times. You know who else makes a real early appearance in here? Tim Russ, TV's uh, Tuvok from Star Trek Voyager. 
Wow, that's a that's a pretty deep cut. Um, we are continuing the trend of awesome people, including awesome people from Star Trek, getting their start in Death Wish films. Right, and uh, as an aside, this episode is episode one hundred of Sequel Cast Two, so we're halfway there. Our, yeah, maybe our next episode will be a hundredth episode spectacular or something. Or hundred and first, or Sequel what? Cast One Hundred One. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> It's about time we explain um, to people what we're doing. Special episode. Uh, yeah, uh, we're looking at Death Wish for the Crackdown. And um, and that's a title with some meaning to it. It is, in, in all sense of the words, because crack is part of the plot. And uh, it's a crackdown on drug dealers. And it's loosely inspired by the Akira Kurosawa film Yojimbo. But it's a very loose connection there. Um, so in 1987, where do you think... This laid in the box office, domestic, I mean, U.S. and Canada. It's So it's a canon film, so I don't doubt it was so cheap it reaped a great profit, but it couldn't have been that high up. I'm going to say 55. 99. Wow. Below it well, at, at least I was right that it was a repeating number. <laughs> Correct. Below it at 100, The Chipmunk Adventure. Wow. Uh, above it are, are some movies I haven't heard of, but you know, in the same ballpark are things like House Two and Teen oh. Wolf Two. House Two, I have a real fondness for. And so just this for movie's con- in good. Right, and for context, the top three movies of '87 were number three, Beverly Hills Cop Two, number two, Fatal Attraction, and number one, a film directed by Leonard Nimoy, Three Men and a Baby. Oh yeah, it's a good year for film. Definitely. I think it, um, yeah, yeah, Predator, Robocop, uh, Ventures in Babysitting, Superman 4, all sorts of good stuff. So, this, this Death Wish, uh, the crackdown, the budget, according to Box Office Mojo, was four, uh, excuse me, five million. Most of that went to the salary of Charles Bronson. I'm sure. And, um, I don't think Death Wish 3 looked like a big budget picture or anything, but it had a bigger scope, I think, than Death Wish 4. This is a more, uh, I think, intimate story. But um, the storyline, I don't think, is, is too bad for what it is. Well, it's it's Paul Kersey just undergoing a general metamorphosis into Batman. Uh, and, it does, and it does one thing that that I, I really like, is that the, the film series up to this point has touched on the idea... That when when Kersey goes on his vigilante killing sprees, there's always some people who are kind of on his side who will at least, you know, make the argument that he's doing the right thing. And every now and then we see just a a normal person on the sidelines help him out, such as the paramedic who helped him escape uh, at the end of the uh, the second film. Uh, But in this film, uh, Kersey gets after after getting his uh, killing mojo back, he has an outright patron. Which yeah, I think is he, a really he's like a, a hitman, and then you have a pretty neat twist at the end. So, I mean, the um, well, I guess we should start at the beginning. Uh, yeah, we should. Uh, part of what kicks off the the plot is uh, Mr. Kersey, uh, played by Charles Bronson, gets a package at home uh, where it says, "Like, I know you're the vigilante who's done these well, killings all across the United States," which it's well, a bit weird. People well, haven't it's just written. A- a cryptic note that just says, yeah. I know who you really are. I know who you are. That's right. And he, he goes and, and meets the, the guy and um, it, he is, 
you know, put on a a mission to take out these uh, these drug dealers. And if he doesn't, his identity will be revealed to the police. So he's being blackmailed into killing drug dealers. But he gets a motivation to do so because he has a... Let's talk about his lady friend. Well, he's he's dating another reporter because he definitely has a type. <laughs> he does. Uh, Erica Sheldon... Or, whoops, Karen Sheldon, played by Kay Lenz. Uh, uh, younger, I might add. Um, but that you tend to see that in these films. But she and and you know, she's she's a she's a reporter. Uh, she has uh, she has a daughter, and this is this is just one of the, the the great crimes of this film is that she she's introduced. The character is is very likable, very sympathetic. Uh, you want to see how her relationship with Kersey is going to evolve. But after the first act, she is completely forgotten and does not show up until like the final fifteen minutes of the film. I do wonder if. There's a whole lot of footage that was cut. This movie runs a pretty lean 99 minutes. And uh, I, I want to circle back real quick to the very beginning of this film is this pretty uh, well-shot sequence in a parking garage. Well, it's 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 well-shot and it's meant to be creepy because it's just – it's a woman walking to her car in a parking garage, but it's shot in this really distant but voyeuristic manner. Like it it builds a lot of tension – but then the tension kind of collapses because when she finally gets to her car, she keeps seeing these. Uh, she it's like when she gets to her car, we keep cutting to her point of view, and she keeps seeing an ever growing number of thugs. And it's comical the way they keep cutting back and forth, and the and the the thugs keep appearing, and it's outright impossible. Uh, the thugs destroy her car, drag her out there. It turns into a pretty. A pretty brutal rape scene, uh, and then out of nowhere, Paul Kersey shows up, uh, shoots all the assailants, uh, then wakes up. It turns out the whole thing's a dream that Paul Kersey's been having, which does explain the fantastical elements. But you know, we talked about in the first film how there there is a scene of sexual assault, and it's and it's pretty it's pretty grotesque and shocking. But at this point, I really feel like the the sexual assault scene is really fetishizing the act. It's it's just way too lurid. In um, there's a book called oh I believe it's it's Bronson's Loose that talks about the making of uh, the five Death Wish pictures with Charles Bronson, and uh, in either that one or in the follow up, they have uh, an, an interview with the actress in the beginning who who is uh, her character is raped. And she said director Jaylee Thompson was trying to insist her to take off her top to show her tits in the scene, and she refused. Mm. So uh, because of that, this is the only Death Wish movie without any nudity. Um, oh, you're right. So I, I don't know if that's to be commended, but that's a um, as obsessed as the series is with showing and lingering on rapes. Um it's a clothed rape. I don't know if that makes it better, but it's. Eh. Well, well, like I said, I feel, I feel like in, in this instance, it's, it's really fetishizing the deed. And I, and that I, that I really don't like. Right. Um, so they do make the, uh, not only do they make a, uh, Paul Kersey's girlfriend, uh, likable. Um, they also have a, a nice thing going on with the, the daughter, uh, Erica played by Dana Barron. In that, you know, Paul Kersey shows her around at his job and 
uh, kind of warms up to her, uh, but but she's dating a bad boy at the arcade. Well, mo- moderately bad, because uh, we find we find out that that she and her boyfriend have been have been experimenting uh, with drugs. The titch of the crack of the crackdown, uh, and you know they the short short of it is is they get uh, is that is that they they get they get some bad crack and she ends up having uh, having an overdose and and dying. Not th- and strangely enough, we don't see any of that. We just kind of jump to the hospital real quick with yet another medical profession professional blandly announcing to to Kersey and his girlfriend, "Oh, she's dead. There's nothing we could do." Yeah, they, I, I, they could have used a few more scenes, I think, to sort of to juice up that uh, that drama because I I did feel bad for for the daughter. Like she, you haven't really seen. I mean, I guess Paul Kersey did have a daughter in the first two films, but she was older, but you never really saw him interact with a teenager before, and they seemed to have a kind of nice rapport going on. It was sort of a, a, a surprise that someone he loved died so early. Well, I mean, the movie really does a good job of, of making... of. Of making you feel for the daughter because like we we see we see her art you know she she her life is is on is on an upward trajectory so we do we do feel the tragedy when she does die of the overdose although one thing that that hurt this scene is that the doctor who tells them that she's dead he looks exactly like the uh, obstetrician from the movie. Uh, Amazon Women uh, from the Moon, which was a sketch a sketch comedy movie from the early 1980s that I that uh, that a lot of a lot of people were were in, including uh, oh crud, including Arsenio Hall. He has a big part in that. It is that the one where it has like a, a Siskel and Ebert sketch about someone's funeral or oh yeah it's 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 a guy is watching tv and he turns to a siskel and ebert type show but they're not reviewing a movie they're reviewing the life story of the guy who's watching their review show it's like well what about the ending you must have liked the ending well the ending came out of nowhere he just dies of a heart attack that doesn't come out of nowhere it's foreshadowed in the following ways and the guy's like well a heart attack oh my god and then he has a heart attack (laughs) there's also a very good I mean, I'm going to table this discussion about that stuff, but we should cover those on the show later because that basically is a sequel to Kentucky Fried Movie, I think. You could you could consider it so. It's certainly part of the same trend of sketch films. Uh, yep. Um, also has Carrie Fisher. Oh, yeah. Her, her mm. post Carrie Fisher in a post-credit <laughs> sketch. Uh, the Loch Ness Monster never had it so good. Okay, back to <laughs> Death Wish 4. Um... But yeah, Kersey goes on, Kersey goes on the warpath, so he immediately goes to the uh, the waterfront slash arcade slash carnival slash midway to try to to try to like figure out like who to essentially to find to find the the dealer, and he does end up finding uh, finding the drug dealer. And what's what's interesting, and I wish they did more with this, is that is that the daughter's boyfriend also wants revenge. And they're both looking for the same mm-hmm. guy and kind of yeah. have a little bit of an interaction with it. But again, like the the idea that, that he's going to team up with somebody and have a protege, that could be a whole movie on its own. But of course, this doesn't go in that direction. But in in the end, uh, Kersey chases the drug dealer, uh, shoots him on a rooftop, and the drug dealer falls onto the bumper car uh, 
arena or whatever whatever the hell the contained area for the bumper car is. So not only has been shot, but he hits that mesh that's on top of the bumper cars and gets electrocuted. It's it's a wonderful it's a wonderfully choreographed death scene that takes advantage of the carnival environment. Sure, and I mean, looking at Charles Bronson, he's still looking pretty good in this picture, but he was in his late 60s, and it really was getting me thinking, this is, he might have been the first action star to have such a, you know, to just keep doing movies so late in his career, but they still kind of treated him like a like he was still a younger man in terms of what he could do. But you see this all the time now with like Steven Seagal or the Expendables films we covered earlier, you know. Well, you know, because it, it's funny, like, because, like, Kersey, he's, he, and Bronson, by extension, he's in shape, but mm-hmm. he he doesn't look like, it, it's not a preposterous level of fitness. Like, he just, he, he, he moves like a person who just generally takes care of himself. And I really like that. It's a very achievable level of, of physical badassdom that the character embodies. Yeah, they're not uh, roided up. They're not on human growth hormone or, or what have you. They, yeah, it's it, he looks like a normal person, and I, I agree that is something that is uh, appealing about Charles Bronson. And he he seems more at ease in this film. Like he might even be having a little bit of fun. I, I, just watching his performances, it's almost like he resents acting. I don't know. Like he he just gives off an aura of not giving a shit constantly, and it's a little bit frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are moments when you wish he would display a bit more emotion. Although at this point, I feel like it's almost established that he's turned into a sociopath. <laughs> so maybe it's appropriate that he doesn't have any real emotional responses to anything that happens. I mean, you think back to that first film after he he kills his first hoodlum and then he he goes home and immediately vomits. Like it's that that's a pretty moving scene. But notably, it also has no d- words. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, you don't give. Or at least as far as I've seen from these pictures, you don't give Bronson, like, big monologues. Um, and so maybe it's better that his dialogue is just so clipped. He's just always to the point. Well, I mean, I think it's also because at this point the movies are very much on Kersey's side. So they're not going to bother having him discuss the morality of violence with anybody at this point. He's just going to do what he does. And now he has help because so two, th- two things get going after this point is that, one... Um, the uh, the police uh, match so that you know of course you know they do an autopsy on on the drug dealer that died and they match the bullet to the gun that was used in the vigilante killings years yep, before yeah. and I think that's real smart that you're tying it to the past sequels but not being you know super married to the idea of continuity or, or canon and having cops on his tail is uh, you know something they've they've done since the very first film with uh with what's his name Vincent Gardenia right with the his big jowly face and the yeah asthma so uh but we, and we, that's where we get the two LA detectives we get uh Sid mm-hmm. Reiner played by George Dickerson and Phil Nazaki played by Soon Tech O and it's Phil Nazaki who ends up you know getting the order like you know Kersey's been a suspect before why don't you keep an eye on him and and uh and we get some neat, in, and we do get some neat interactions with, with with Phil Nazaki just shadowing Paul Kersey and kind of both of them showing up at the same place at the same time on multiple occasions. Well, and good on them for making one of the detectives a Korean. It, it, it you know, around this time when this was made in the late '80s, it still in any other movie would have been just two white guys, probably. So very true. And I also like that they don't like 
like they don't cover up his accent. Like I liked, I liked yes. that he, he gets to use his accent in this. It's really, it's really cool. Like it, it bespeaks of a character with a lot of background, which unfortunately the movie doesn't exactly uh, touch on. Although Nozaki does have his secrets, which we'll get into later. But this is also when Kersey, uh, you know, gets a mysterious phone call from the person who sent him the note. Uh, and, you know, the person says, you, I need you to have a meeting with me or else I will send some evidence to to the police that ties you to the vigilante killings. So he ends up entering entering a limo, going to this palatial estate uh, and meets uh, this eccentric billionaire whose daughter died of a crap cocaine overdose. So he wants to fund Bronson's vigilante killings, provided he goes after after drug dealers and kind of shoot murders his way up the 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 cartel and i think this is like perfectly fine as a setup it it does stretch belief but these death wish death wish uh, movies have gotten more absurd <laughs> as they go on i think that's fair to say and um this actor that plays uh, his uh the guy that gives him the missions nathan white uh is the character name, and he's played by John P. Ryan. I think he does a really good performance of like this um, kind of elite uh, dude. I don't know. Like, there's just something I liked about him. This kind of crusty old guy. Well, there's something a little bit uh, aristocratic about him. Like, yeah, he, when, yeah. when he first shows up, you totally buy him as this eccentric, uh, this eccentric millionaire. Uh, and like, a, like a lot of millionaires, his priorities are all screwed up. Because rather than trying to lift people, uh, rather than trying to lift people out of poverty, no, he just wants to murder drug dealers. <laughs> but again, that will have context later, which which I do like. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, I, I do think this is one of the better scripts as far as the sequels goes. Um, so yeah, I did mention before this was uh, considered by the writers to be loosely based on Yojimbo. Have you ever seen that movie? I'm. I am sorry to say that I have not. Okay, it was remade in the '90s with Bruce Willis as Last Man Standing, hmm. w- directed by Walter Hill. But basically, the, the main core of the plot, even, the original one, is a samurai picture. But a samurai goes into town, and there's two warring gangs, and he plays one side against the other. So they end up killing each other, and that huh. you see elements of that in this movie. But I would hardly call this a remake of an acclaimed. Uh, like 1960s samurai picture. And, and so we, we get two mob bosses that he's doing jobs against. One one is Ed Zacharias, played by uh, Perry Lopez, and the other are Jack and Tony Romero, played by Mike Maroff and Dan Farrow. And, you know, it, these are all character actors. They're not like big celebrities or anything, but I think in a way that makes them more believable. Well, you know, they... Strangely enough, like they look like people who would play like background gangsters who have one or two lines in a much bigger movie. Mm-hmm. And I That's think, right. and I think that and does help they have. them here. Uh, so it, I guess we'll talk about some of our favorite, I guess, uh, of uh, Paul's executions. There's one at this uh, wine um, at this wine bar that is. Oh just yeah, that's his delightful. second. That's his second big mission. Yeah, there's this <laughs> Italian restaurant that that Danny Trejo and some other guys are in having a meeting, and Bronson shows up. Pretend he does a lot of undercover work, and he shows up yes. pretending to be a distributor slash salesman for this new winery. 
and he's like, oh, you got to try this wine here, try this wine. Um, and it, it, so it turns out the the bottle he's, he's you know, dicking around with, it's it's actually a time bomb, which means he's ex, it's exquisitely timed because the bartender doesn't want to try it. Then he goes to give a bottle to the gangsters and he's just kind of and like, well, why don't you try it too? And and Danny Trejo's keep who who was at a party Kersey was at earlier is like, don't I don't I know you? You look real familiar to me. And it's awesome seeing young Danny Trejo looking slightly less craggly than he does today. But I love Danny Trejo in anything. He's always a bright spot. But but Kersey's like, no, I really I really can't. Better go. And Kersey just kind of runs out, and then we get this shot of their table exploding. And the fireball is so huge, I can only assume the bartender also died. The compositing of that explosion looks like a bad screensaver. Like, the effect is really forced and awkward, which makes it delightful. But the whole thing of an exploding wine bottle, <laughs> the way Kersey scampers off, it's like a Bugs Bunny. Ain't I a stinker gag? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the timing is so perfect, because, like, like, how did he know it was going to go off right then? I mean, did, like... In, in, I guess he was counting in his head down how much time time it had or something. Um, although there had to have been like, like, I guess it's just to build tension in the scene. But really, if you're pretending to be a salesman, you could have just like had him. You could have just like had a meal in the in the adjoining booth and then leave, but casually have forgotten your briefcase and have the bomb in there. That would have worked. So much better but yeah i think what it is is when they is is that they because clearly they had some dummies in the people's costumes and they blew those up in the reproduction of the booth but like there's clearly more than one frame of the pre-explosion shot and i think that's what does it it's just enough that you are subliminally aware of the fact that you're looking at a bunch of mannequins blowing up if this was an Arnold Schwarzenegger picture, there would have been a, a pun after the explosion, like, hope you enjoyed the Cabernet Savit bomb. <laughs> I am detecting notes of a hickory, a Sonoma Valley grapes, and C4. Stop whining. Oh, that's oh, too that, good. You win. Yes. Um, there, there I, is... it, it's just a delightful little sequence. Uh and they're really quite uh, the editing is, is quite efficient here. How it keeps going from mission to mission to mission, like it gives it a nice pace at this part in the film. Yeah, it, it hits the it hits these beats, and which which I rather like. And it doesn't share too much screen time with anything else because it is at this point that they forget that Kersey ha- has a love interest or that anything else is going on in his life. But he does a. Um, he uh, like his his first because his first mission it's really almost all intelligence gathering because he's pretending to be a waiter at this fancy catered event at a uh, ma- at a hot chicks mansion I guess is the only way I can describe it where he's putting bugs in all the phones but he also witnesses a mob hit and he's like oh I was just in the toilet and like th- th- they to get compromat on him like they help they make him help them ca- cart the body away. <laughs> There's a lot of tension yeah. in that scene because I kept waiting for him to have to shoot his way out. I I, I really like that. That's not what happened. That's right. Um, so you see a whole bunch of uh, the, these uh, scenarios. Uh, is there another one that stood out to you? 
Well, there, well, there. I kind of want to talk about. Well, like there's there's the whole big fish packing plant thing. So there's a there's a fish cannery that's being used as a front for for the drug smuggling, um, and uh, and Cur- so Kersey, you know, pretends to be a longshoreman to get a job in the plant and works his way to the secret back room where they're processing the drugs which are being smuggled inside fish. And that just turns into a that that's another thing where it turns into this crazy this crazy big shootout ending with an explosion and it's another explosion where I can only assume some of the legitimate fish packers also died <laughs> but it's it's almost like RoboCop the way he tears through that drug processing operation. Yeah, it's a I think a, a fish facility and hiding the drugs in there is pretty novel and um, it, it's a good little set piece. But there's also one, there's another drug, uh, there's an African-American drug kingpin where he's, the whole reason I like this scene is like he's just supposed to, I think he's just supposed to go into the guy's apartment and bug the phones when the guy goes to the opera, but but he has to go back to his apartment because of an argument he's having with his floozy, yeah. who is this great <laughs> Runyon-esque character. I absolutely love the the guy's floozy. And that leads to a pretty cool, like a pretty cool fight scene in the apartment that ends with, uh, with with the drug kingpin falling uh, in full ragdoll fashion from the uh, from his apartment window and landing into his own limousine right in front of his floozy. <laughs> well, and before their fight scene begins, when he goes in and he, you know, sees uh, Paul Kersey there, it is. Just a, a wonderful little bit of awkward moments between them. Oh and, yeah, this <laughs> Kersey's just trying to play dumb, <laughs> right? And he doesn't, and like in some other move, you know, and the other guy doesn't fall for it, which I think is nice. And they get into a bit of a grappling battle. It's uh, that's a good sequence. Um, and and uh, this is also this is also like uh, Phil Nazaki is in the area. He's actually casing the place. When uh, Kersey shows up, and he's there when Kersey leaves, and at this point, yeah, like it, it's, it's this point that I was kind of yelling at the screen, Phil, why aren't you arresting him? And we find out why. Uh, so Bronson is working late in his architectural firm, and Phil Nazaki shows up, and it turns out Phil Nazaki is a crooked cop who's working with these drug dealers. And uh, he's in their employ, and he tries to cut a deal with Paul Kersey to just get per- Kersey to leave town, and he'll make all the evidence and charges go away. Uh, and it's at this point that uh, <laughs> that Bronson shoots Phil Nazaki. Yeah, I, that was a twist I wasn't expecting, and I felt a bit sorry for Nazaki because at one point he talks about his family and and all these things about why he's doing it, and uh, it, it's a good sequence that he. It's and it's I think the only time in the series where you see him kill someone in his office at work. Yeah, and I guess you know it's late at night, so it's it not like anyone's going to hear the not... the gunshot. I think the only thing I don't like about that scene is that it doesn't have any real consequences, you know, because clearly Phil Nazaki is going there off the book so he can have plausible deniability. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but but at the same time, Br- Bronson's killed a cop, and the police force doesn't seem to be doesn't seem to care at all that a police detective has gone missing. I also kind of want to know how Bronson got rid of the body because he's never had to get rid of a body before. You know, oh, he just... I don't know. I think he's had to get rid of bodies. We just haven't seen it. He's well, at this point he has murdered 
uh, dozens of people. Yeah, but he always just leaves the bodies wherever they fall. Like, like is or or, may, or maybe is Phil Nozaki is his corpse just stuffed in a locked closet in the architectural firm, and he'll deal with it later. Maybe he uh, drops off the body at the competing architectural firm across the street. Oh, oh, that would be great. Um, and then we get something that's actually really fun: is that uh, the you know that all the the drug syndicates are panicking that. Uh, that you know, you know, they they know that they're 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 dying. So uh, Ed Zacharias and Rayner they make arrangements to have a meeting out in one of those the old California oil derricks to try to work out work out who's why people are dying and what you know what they can do to protect themselves. And Kersey is there uh, with his sniper rifle, and we get another like neat protracted shootout. Because he 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 this is just your 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 Jimbo moment. He 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 triggers a full-on gang war by shooting one of the gangsters with a sniper rifle. Uh, they all start shooting each other. Then Bronson gets brought into the firefight. And the whole thing, its it really does feel like an old-timey Western shootout, which Bronson has a hell of a lot of experience with. Yeah, it, it that he's using a sniper is gives the scene some suspense because you're not quite sure if he's going to make his shots. And Although I can't possibly believe they don't notice him because he's barely he's barely <laughs> hidden behind a shrub that's maybe like what thirty feet away from them, right? And and he's not um, in camouflage. And I think especially the way the the two Romero brothers kind of go crazy and off the handle, uh, accusing each other. Like you get some of the the better acting from from the different uh, head of the gangster factions there, and and you get. Because it's an oil field, you get again some good explosions. So it's it it's uh, perhaps my favorite action uh, sequence in the film. Yeah, I mean it's it's really it's really well choreographed. It almost feels like that should have been the climax of the movie mm-hmm. uh, because the the actual climax doesn't quite reach the same heights. Eh. Uh, although I do like the environment used for the climax, but uh, but, but here it's we after get a th- twist. Oh yes, because Bronson. Dewey. Oh boy. Kersey reaches out to his to his uh, patron, and he's not getting anything. So Kersey uh, Kersey kind of realizes that it was uh, that it was a setup because he he finds out that the gangsters that the the crime syndicates were hoping to draw him out, and he was supposed to die in that uh, he was supposed to die in that same shootout. So finally, Kersey storms into that mansion where he met the guy. And there's a completely different old billionaire living in that mansion. And it turns out Bronson's been played. Yeah, the guy uh, giving him the briefings was not the real Nathan White. Instead, uh, it was, in fact, a uh, another drug lord who was using Kersey to kill his competition. And I think that's a real fun twist and a good way to get us into the third act. Yeah, it's it, it is it is neat that after all this time, you know, Bronson, Bron- a criminal has been using Bronson to help the criminal underworld, or at least his own his own part of it. I, I really like that. Although I kind of wish I kind of wish Kersey would grapple with the the guilt of helping out this drug kingpin, but it does uh, it does escalate because he's not gonna he's not gonna stop. He wants to go after the guy who played him, so he continues his vigilante killings, uh, and so the guy uh, so. The, the drug kingpin who played him decides to kidnap his uh, girlfriend. So, you know, that's what always happens. Right. It's a pretty standard trope uh, for these 
kind of movies. And, and just like in the last film, he has a... Uh, or in the last film, it was a rocket launcher. In this one, it's a grenade launcher. Yes, it is. It is a grenade launcher and not a rocket launcher. Okay, but yeah, but, there's but a. It is a, a high, a, a explosive gun, an explosive launching gun. Uh, it's a terrible description on my part. Um, so. But yeah, he go. He goes. To, he tries to rescue. He tries to rescue uh, Karen Sheldon. Uh, there's a really neat shootout that goes through an arcade and a roller rink, and I like how it uses that environment. It's and I also like the classic arcade games that we see in the background. Um, oh, and uh, and it and it, and you know it's a full on shootout, and it finally, unfortunately, uh, Karen dies, uh, which I guess we should we should expect at this point. That tends to happen to his love interest in every goddamn movie in this series. Uh, but finally, yeah. Uh, he just shoots the guy with his grenade launcher, and it's another ridiculous explosion. Um, and like, I can't, I can't help but like, I know it's not meant to be comical, but it is comical. <laughs> it's almost yes. like it, it's shot like if you were on The Simpsons, going to do a Death Wish parody. That's how the Death Wish parody would end with a tiny weapon just blowing a guy up. But then that's what we get. His tiny, his tiny grenade launcher blows up his adversary in a massive fireball. No, I, I, I agree. I laughed as well. It's, it's very over the top. And I think, although this movie does have, you know, a lot of explosions, I think it's slightly more grounded than Death Wish 3. Uh, yeah, I'll give it that, if only because there's much less use of, of military-grade weaponry. And people, when they get shot, you know, Flying back thirty feet. Every yeah. time. That's, uh, there's nothing left to fly back once you've exploded. That that's true, and it ends in kind of the classic sort of thing you'd see in a western, or all these movies end pretty much the same way. Where, uh, in this case, Reiner, the other cop, uh, threatens to shoot Kersey, and Kersey just says like, "Do what you have to." And just kind of just walks off. Like it, it, it's a bit anticlimactic. I, um, it, it is, you know, if if you like these Death Wish movies, Thrasher, and it sounds like you have, I would really recommend checking out that book, Bronson's Loose, because it talks about a lot of alternate screenplays they tried to do for these sequels. Oh, I love stories about movies that never got made. I think I'm going to have to check that out. Uh huh. Um, and and it 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 is really. They even uh, went to Brian Garfield, who wrote the original Death Wish novel, and he submitted a pitch for a sequel, but they didn't use his pitch. Um, and they kept, and they had a hard time selling uh, Charles Bronson on doing a Death Wish four hmm. because he had a really negative experience doing Death Wish two, and kind of did Death Wish three as an obligation. But it, it, it is the classic thing where your other movies don't do so good. Eh, let's do a Death Wish. That's a big payday. <laughs> well, you know, it's not just a payday. It's synergy and cross-promotion. Uh, this is, uh, this is uh, something I did want to touch on. So there is, a, there is a shootout in a video rental place. There's also uh, one of... Uh, one of Kersey's meetings with his patron is in a small theater. Uh, and that theater is showing the canon group's version of Othello that came out the same year. Also, all the movie posters and video cassettes in the video store are canon films. Also, if you notice in the uh, uh, in the arcade, 
the handful of arcade cabinets we see where we can clearly identify what the arcade game is, though most of them are arcade games based around canon films. <laughs> yes, they are never shy about cross-promotion, and, and I'm surprised that canon did a version of Othello. That seems a bit well, highfalutin. But I think that's why they did it, though. It makes them mm. seem like a legitimate artsy studio. And also, like, remember, the the way they attracted directors is they tend to they, – they would just sort of say, as long as you can get the movie done within this time period and within this budget, you can do whatever the hell you want. That's how they got uh, Toby Hooper back to do Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Uh, he didn't uh, – that's why Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is a sequel because Hooper had complete – not a sequel, a comedy because he was given complete creative control. And that's the only reason he did that project. I mean that's basically – Kind of the same thing as what happened with Joe Dante and Gremlins 2. Yeah. Is- and uh, and also those arcade cabinets based on canon films. Uh, to, be- to the best of my knowledge, none of those movies actually had arcade games. I think they just mocked those up for that scene. And you'll notice none of the screens are turned on on those arcade cabinets. <laughs> Even though it's a busy, bustling arcade. Sure. Uh, that's all good points uh, there. Um but yeah, overall, I I like this movie more than I thought. Like it, I don't think it's as entertaining as Death Wish Three, um, but it's it's certainly an easy watch, and and the the kind of dumb nature of of the kills and the plot is kind of clever. So I I would say I give a sequel yes to Death Wish Four: The Crackdown. I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm giving it a sequel yes too. As as many problems as this movie has. I found it vastly entertaining. I love the dynamic of Kersey working with a patron. I love the double cross. I love seeing Danny Trejo and Tim Russ uh, early on in their careers. This is a definite sequel, yes. I I loved every frame of this movie. So uh, with the pitch a sequel, I had something in mind where Paul Kersey, he, he's an older man. He's uh, a bit... You know, run down. He's done this Death Wish uh, stuff, killing people, killing gangsters, so many times over and over again. But um, he he falls upon hard times at his architecture firm. The hmm. this big project he wanted kind of fell through, but he owed a big he owed a few million dollars to the bank. He couldn't get it covered, so he ends up on the street, homeless, and he gets tracked by a vigilante inspired by Kersey's old exploits. Huh. So Paul Kersey is the hunted, and he's homeless and having to fight to survive on the streets, and he's fighting against a, a Paul Kersey copycat. Oh, that's an interesting dynamic. Yeah, and it's called uh, Death Wish... Death Wish 5 on the Streets. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, my own uh, pitch a sequel. I really like the idea of of uh, Kersey having a protege. So my premise for a sequel is, you know, Kurt Kersey's getting older and he's doing a vigilante killing and he nearly dies in the process. And he realizes I'm getting too old for this shit. So 
but he doesn't you know he doesn't want his streak of vengeance to end so he does what any sane person would do um he starts dating a woman uh who has a son from a previous marriage uh and at the height of the relationship knowing that it always happens to him uh she gets brutally murdered then goes to that son and says okay you want revenge for your mom i'll show you how to do it and so he becomes a mentor to this uh, this young man and trains him how to be the next vigilante. And Bronson is essentially, it's like a CW show. Bronson is his guy in the room full of screens, giving him intelligence and orders and helping to coordinate these new uh, vigilante killings, um, which will get police detectives involved. But as always, they won't actually make any arrests. Uh, however, it's going to turn out that the the young man he's been mentoring does not... Uh, stop with uh, with the vigilante killings. He starts killing other people who have wronged him in lesser ways that did not actually involve criminality, um, like uh, you know, like like the used car salesman who sold him a lemon, that kind of thing. Um, and Bronson realizes that I've created a monster. So Bronson, uh, so it ends with a showdown between his between Kersey and his protege. Uh, and in the end, though, the protege is not going to die. He's going to get badly. He's going to get badly injured. And the short of it is that uh, the police detective who's witnessed this is sympathetic to Kersey uh, and says, OK, well, we'll just take the kid in and we'll pin everything on him. And so mm. that's how it's going to that's how it's going to end is that Kersey effectively transfers all of his sin to the young man and the young man faces the uh, consequences of years of uh, Kersey's own vigilante killings. Great. Uh, what, what do you call that one? Uh, Death Wish Blood Ties. Good name. Um, so before we go on to what you're watching, I want to uh, see I, I got an email from a fan of the show. We, we always cool. love it when this happens. So I'm going to. I didn't ask his permission for this, but I so I won't give his name, but I will um, sort of say he had some suggestions for stuff we can do. Oh. Uh, one was Pokemon, uh, which there's over 20 of those pictures, but he was saying maybe the first three. Yeah, maybe the you first, pick a particular uh, cycle there. Or the first five, right. Uh, he also said High School Musical Trilogy. Um, I have been curious about that. Mm-hmm. I've just been hesitant to suggest it because we haven't really done musicals before, but that could be cool. Well, there's not a whole lot of musical sequels, you know. That's true. Most of, most of them are direct to video Disney stuff. Yeah. Um, and then he was suggesting a whole lot of different Doctor Who stuff. Really? Um, yeah. And I think that's sort of out of scope for the show, except those uh, the theatrical ones, perhaps. You know, where Peter Cushing was Doctor Who. Oh yes, uh, Doctor Who and the Daleks, and Doctor Who: The Dalek Invasion of Earth, twenty seven thirty one A.D. I believe is the full title of the second one. And Which I, actually, I've seen both of those. We could yeah. do those. And uh, and just for fun, I just sort of asking, you know, what's your favorite sort of episode or cycle of episodes from the classic Doctor Who, meaning before the two thousand five kind of reboot with the Eccleston. And and the and the newer stuff, and he thought his favorite classic uh, thing was Genesis of the Daleks. Ooh! And out of the new stuff, he really liked the Day of the Doctor, which was the fiftieth anniversary special. That one was pretty fun, and and did kind of a it was fun. It's fun seeing the Doctor play off against another Doctor, but also it just kind of 
it, it was the right kind of tribute for a 50th anniversary story. Yeah, very good. Um, so yeah, so thank, thanks very much uh, for the email. And uh, yeah, we always like uh, like hearing from our fans. If you want to do same thing, you know, just shoot an email to sequelcast at gmail.com. So um, what you watching? Uh, Thrasher, what have you been watching? So I found a, a real rarity from 1985, The Complete Al, which it's a, it's a strange creature because it is half legitimate documentary about Weird Al's career up to that point and half mockumentary with completely made up stuff. Did this air on MTV originally or was this direct to video? It it probably did, although it was available, as near as I can tell, it was available on uh, on VHS, and I think it was I think it was released uh, to help promote the Dare to Be Stupid album from 1985. Um, but it really it really is like as a, as a longtime Weird Al fan, it it, it was very entertaining. Uh, it contains a lot of his classic music videos, which is really awesome. Uh, also, I completely uh, this completely passed me by, but one of my favorite voice actresses. Tress McNeil. It turns out she's the voice of Lucy Ricardo on the song "Hey Ricky," and she yep. ap- and she appears in that music video, and she also does she also does the, this secretary voice, Francine, uh, in this in this in uh, the complete Al. So it's it's great actually seeing her on camera for once, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I've never seen it. I've always meant to. Um, it, if you like Weird Al, and, and you just said you did. Uh, I don't know why I phrased it like that. Uh, <laughs> Nathan Rabin, who used to write for the AV Club, he has his own blog now at NathanRabin.com, and he's been doing a series of articles looking at Weird Al Yankovic music track by track. I believe he's also co-writing the official Weird Al uh, biography, uh, The Weird According to Al. He, yeah, he did that a few years ago. Um, oh, cool. And, and that, that's that's a neat book, and, and this one is more of like a collection of his essays, which they're also making into a book. It had a pretty successful uh, Kickstarter. So it's, um, yeah, that, that man's done a lot of music. He's been doing a whole lot of touring though. It's been almost uh, four or five years since his last album. Um, so hopefully we'll get another album out of him. I think, you know, the only he's released a single uh, called the Hamilton Polka, but I, I don't think we've seen any real new music. Well, I mean, pop music, pop music never stops. So I'm sure we are going to get another album from him at some point in the next two years. And, and I, for one, I'm looking forward to it. I yes, I I hope so. I so. What's your favorite Weird Al album? Oh gosh, I it. I'm I think. Probably, and this is probably because it was the first one I ever had. But what is it? A bad hair day. Ah, okay. And I th- and I think it is primarily because it was the first one I ever had that I could listen to over and over again. I just have a strong emotional connection with it. Although that being said, as far as songs go, my favorite is probably "Dare to Be Stupid." I absolutely love that song. Like Mark Mothersbaugh said, it's the greatest Devo song ever written. It's just not written by Devo. <laughs> right. Um. I, I like Off the Deep End, I think is a good album as far as originals go. And uh, when you're talking about covers, mm, Bad Hair Day is is pretty 
good uh, for the covers. Uh, the parodies, so I mean, you mean? Oh, sorry, for parodies. Yeah, not covers. What am I thinking? Yeah, so there you go. Um, I've been on a bit of a Stephen King kick, so I watched a, uh, a movie from 1993 directed by George A. Romero, The Dark Half. Oh, cool. Have you ever seen this one? No, I don't think I have. So it's not... It, it's Unfortunately, it's not so good, but the... I had read the book when I was younger, and I thought I'd give the movie a, a chance. And uh, so it's about the main character is a writer, as is the case in a lot of Stephen King books. Uh, Thad Beaumont, played by Timothy Hutton. And he writes uh, books under a pen name, George Stark, that are super violent and stuff. And it turns out his um, pen name is an actual uh, persona and a different separate human than he is that commits mm. murders. But it has his fingerprints and stuff because he was born as a twin, but the his um, embryo or whatever uh, fetus consumed his twin. <laughs> so you have Timothy Hutton playing a dual role, and it's okay, it's okay, but it's just missing something special. It's kind of a dopey uh, premise. But it is a, a rare chance to see George A. Romero doing a studio film with some more money than he usually gets. Huh. I'll have to check this one out. Yeah. Um, and uh, you, you get a, a younger Michael Rooker playing the Sheriff Painborn, who kind of keeps on needling uh, the main character throughout the story. Very cool. So we have a sequel scene, right? As as brief as it is, because this is not a well documented film. <laughs> no, um, can you refresh my memory to to set the scene? Who is Ed Zacharias in this, and and what's happening? Just... So, uh, so Ed's uh, this is this is uh, at the tail end of the shootout by the oil rigs. Ed Zacharias was shot in the leg and has been running away from the fight the whole time, uh, but Kersey finally corners him as he tries to get into the limo. Uh, Ed Zacharias is done begging for his life. And so this is their, this is their final exchange out by the oil, the oil derricks, which I gotta say, I applaud this movie for its restraints for not having all the oil wells just explode as they get hit with stray fire. (laughs) Yeah. There's lots of opportunities for pyrotechnics in this scene and they take none of them. And I can't tell if that's just them being cheap or them being subtly brilliant. So which character would you like to play? Uh I guess I'll do uh, I'll do Paul Kersey. Okay, I'll be Ed Zacharias and I'll be the um dis- I'll do the description in there as well. Uh-huh. Who are you? I'm the guy that set you up. Why? Kersey opens up his coat pocket and shows the picture of his girlfriend's daughter to Zacharias. I don't know the girl. I do. Pew! And that's that could have made a neat final act. Like I do, like I I like him. Like it's it's like M Bison, you know. Oh, that that moment changed your life. But for me, it was Tuesday. Mm. You know, I love this like this 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 little thing coming back on Ed Zacharias in a big way. Right. If only uh, Paul Kersey was given clues throughout the whole time by the ghost of the daughter. <laughs> She appears as a Jedi ghost to give him guidance. 
I think the drug dealer might be around the corner. Okay. Time to luck and load. <laughs> so next week, we're going to continue our epic, epic journey through these Death Wish films <laughs> with Death Wish 5. My browser just crashed. Death Wish 5, The Face of Death from 1994. Yeah, so this was uh, almost a decade later. Death Wish 5, Faces of Death. So I, um, I cannot wait. Yeah. And then after that, we'll be doing Death Wish, uh, the remake with Bruce Willis from uh, a few years ago. So for... Uh, do you have anything to plug, Mr. Thrasher? Um, not at the moment. I don't have any. I don't have any new releases coming up, and uh, j- I guess just just try to remind everybody if you want to see me in person, uh, I will be. Uh, I will be at uh, Gen Con this year. I'll be running a lot of events, so just look at the schedule for under Kettle of Fish Productions. That will give you a good idea of where I am going to be at any given time. Uh, Beyond that, maybe you can catch me at Scotty's. I don't know. Um, and I, I'm i still waiting on something, uh, but I should also be at Dragon Con this year as well. So if anybody wants to see me talk about the show in person, uh, I will be on the floor on both those shows. Um, I have a book coming out later this year, but I cannot nice. say what it is quite yet. But I'll let you know when the pre-order page is up on Amazon. Fantastic. So that's uh, been working on that for about two years and uh yeah it's been but it's based on an idea i've had for about 15 years so yeah it's been a long time coming um so it's nice to as good as it feels to start writing a book it feels really good to finish writing a book (laughs) i don't know if that says more about me or the writing process but it's uh very good all right um so uh follow me on twitter at m-a-t-w-b-t you can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. Uh, follow the show on Twitter at SequelCast2. Uh, check out the website, SequelCast2.com. Like our Facebook page, uh, just search SequelCast2. And leave us a review on the Apple Podcast app. Again, also, our theme song, written and performed by Mark with the C. Check him course. out at MarkWithTheC.com. Yes, yes, yes. So, uh, for SequelCast2, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Saying. I just work here. You got my chocolate in my peanut butter. You got your peanut butter in my chocolate. The way I did it just then sounded a bit like Vincent Price. (laughs) (laughs) You got your peanut butter in my chocolate. Mm. Please buy my cookbooks. That doesn't even sound like... (laughs) Buy my book. Buy my book. (laughs) (laughs) I, I give Death Wish for... No... Uh, Death Wish 4 more like Death Movie <laughs> Tom Cruise I'm actually kind of shocked he's... the critic didn't do a Death Wish parody at some point Right, Tom Cruise didn't act he's on cruise control okay. <laughs> I just made that up <laughs> hey listen if it's still available listen to Shermometer critiquing the critic uh, by it's, us it, it's not but I need to re-upload it to the new site yeah it's, uh, <laughs> I, I, I'll I have to reach out to Al Jean and see if he ever listened to our episodes because I did send him a zip file with all them in it one time 
that would be cool, but uh, <laughs> it, a bit self-aggrandizing. But there you go. Okay, uh, yeah, I, this is not going in the show. Um, okay. <laughs>